Daniel chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, hear now the inspired word of God. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom the prefects and the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that, that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Let's pray. Father, we continue our service this morning by bowing before you and asking just very simply and very humbly that you would be pleased to bless the preaching of the word that we, we, that we would learn the lessons that you have for us 
from the example of this godly man that you raised up so many years ago. We pray even now, Father, that you would raise up more Daniels in this time period, that, Father, that we may advance your kingdom here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Here's a question that always sparks a hot debate. Was Lee Harvey Oswald a lone gunman responsible for the assassination of JFK? Or was he a party to a greater conspiracy? You know, the Warren Commission was formed to answer that very question. Here's just a brief summary of their findings. The commission has found no evidence that either Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby was part of any conspiracy, domestic or foreign, to assassinate President Kennedy. The commission has found no evidence of conspiracy, subversion, or disloyalty to the U.S. government by any federal, state, or local official. Now, one would think that with those conclusions strongly worded from a presidential commission that the matter would be settled. But on the contrary, since the publication of the findings of the Warren Commission, dozens of conspiracy theories have been offered by a variety of people. Uh, people of different backgrounds, law enforcement officers, uh, district attorneys, uh, journalists, documentarians, and just John Doe on the street. There are at least five very different theories on the subject, and most of them offer what they consider to be proof of a larger conspiracy. Now, it's interesting. This year will mark the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And we're no closer to a consensus on what happened on that day. If the assassination was truly a conspiracy, then it's understandable that proving it would be difficult. For by its very nature, a conspiracy is something done in secret, and usually with just a few participants. In fact, let me just give you a brief definition of conspiracy in the New York State Penal Code. This is conspiracy in the sixth degree. A person is guilty of conspiracy in the sixth degree when, with intent that conduct committing a crime be performed, he agrees with one or more persons to engage in or cause the performance of such conduct. Now, of course, there's five degrees above that, but they're basically the, uh, the same. To be convicted of the crime of conspiracy, one of the participants must commit what's called an overt act to further the crime. But we hear a lot about conspiracy these days as we see the politics of corruption increasing in our society. But that's nothing new. Daniel was a victim of a conspiracy that led him to the lion's den. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, at the events leading up to that serious encounter. So we'll begin looking at verses 1 and 2 of the text. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and the king might not suffer loss. A couple of points to remember. This is the last chapter in what has been called the historical section of Daniel. But if you remember, 
the historical section of Daniel is not a typical biblical historical narrative. Not like we see in, in historical books such as 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. <clears throat> because the writers of Daniel include only enough history to bring clarity to their events that they are putting forth. And that will become even more clear when we move to chapter 7 and find those events actually precede the events of chapter 6. But more on that later in our series. But another quick note, don't be puzzled by the term satraps. Don't let that cause you to, to, your mind to wander because that's simply a title for a certain governing official, somewhat akin to titles that we would have for a mayor or or a county executive, or something of, of that nature. For now, though, let's remember how chapter 5 ended. Let's look at the connection here. Look at chapter 5. Remember verse 30 and 31? That same night, Belshazzar, the king, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now, no, no, no details are given about the conquering of Babylon or even who this man Darius really was. Darius is, is kind of a, a ghost in history. Other than the fact that along with Cyrus the Persian, he ruled the empire which, we conquered, which conquered the Babylonians. Now, it's interesting, the most most accurate historical documents we have are Holy Scripture. So all we really need to know about Darius is that he was the Mede, and he was one who took over after Belshazzar was, was killed. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he, wing, he brings in that kingdom represented by the silver uh, shoulders and breast. But the chronology of the kings of the ancient empires is not the concern of the authors of Daniel. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, and then the very next verse is it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps. The lack of detail is itself instructive. Darius institutes a hierarchy of governing officials to rule over certain areas of the kingdom. And I love the way the text, but it seemed good to him. He had a good idea. And then he appoints three commissioners over the satraps, one of whom is Daniel. Now, this tells us something about the situation in this new kingdom. First, Daniel has already distinguished himself in the new realm. He is appointed to one of three to oversee the entire kingdom. Now, we should not be surprised by this since it has been a pattern in Daniel since his entrance into captivity in the first chapter of, of, Babel, of, of Daniel. His character, his wisdom, his discernment, plus his loyalty and faithful, faithfulness to his superiors has set him a cut above the rest of his peers. Plus the ability that God has given to interpret dreams and visions has certainly helped his stature. 
But we can't even be sure how long a period of time lapses between 531 and 6-1. However long it was, it was long enough for Darius to set up the government of his new kingdom. And it was also long enough for him to see the character of Daniel and his worth to the kingdom. But it also tells us that either Darius was a very suspicious man and sets up a new system of accountability to prevent corruption, or he already knows there's a problem. That some of the lower officials are stealing from him. Look, look at the, the last clause of verse 2. He sets up the three commissioners that they might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So the king already had it in his mind. There's corruption. You could say at this point that also that Daniel's reputations preceded him. But typical of Daniel, he demonstrated his character to the new king. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. What more can we say about Daniel? You know, there's a proverb, I think, that fits Daniel perfectly. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Let me put it to you this way. If you were applying for an executive position in a company, you don't want to compete against Daniel. <laughs> of the 120 satraps and two other commissioners, Daniel excels above them all. So much so that the king plans to appoint him over the entire kingdom. But that's when the trouble begins. While Daniel's righteous living and competency in his position didn't affect his peers, well, there was no problem. Oh, that's goody two-shoes Daniel. That's, you, know, you know, he's just the way he is. Because in that sense, he was one of them. He was no threat to them. He had his piece of the empire to rule, and they had theirs to rule. But think of it this way. If Daniel was placed over all of them, that's where the trouble comes. They knew they couldn't pull the wool over Daniel's eyes. He was smarter and more discerning than any of them. They could get away with nothing fraudulent or crooked because Daniel would know it. And if they were corrupt, as the king suspected some corruption, they would surely be found out by Daniel, whose loyalty was to the king. And even if they were honest subjects of the king, which is doubtful, jealousy comes into play. You know, there's... There's a saying, there's two ways to have the tallest building in town. One is by building the tallest building in town. The other is by tearing every other building down. Why should Daniel get this position and not one of us is the thinking that we see here. After all, he's not really one of us. He's not 
Babylonian. He's not Median. He's not Persian. He's from Judah, a Hebrew, which they will point out later on. This is not acceptable to them, so they conspire against him. Look at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. You know, if anyone ever doubted the character of Daniel, this is the verse that I would point to. His rivals... His bitter rivals, the, the ones who would benefit the most from finding evidence against him, they give him a clean bill of health. They can find nothing. They went looking for something, anything to use against him. They come up with nothing. Remember, this was not an impartial panel of men evaluating Daniel's position. This was a group of men who specifically were bent on finding something, anything to use against him, specifically in regard to his employment as a governing official. You know, usually when you appoint a commission to find something, they will find something. But look at the results of their investigation. <clears throat> no grounds for accusation. No evidence of corruption. Rather, they found evidence of his faithfulness to his position. They couldn't even find evidence of negligence. He didn't forget something. It's easy to see why the king was seeking to promote him to oversee the entire empire. These men find themselves in a, in a quandary. What shall we do? What began as a movement to remove Daniel from his office now begins to reveal itself as a conspiracy. Obviously, Daniel is not just a minor inconvenience to his peers any longer. He's standing in their way, which is one of the reasons I believe these men were corrupt officials, and they feared that the righteous Daniel would find them out. And that's just not 20 years in law enforcement speaking. <laughs> well, some of it is. I tend to be suspicious by not by nature, but by job. So they conspired together against Daniel. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Finding no fault in him in regards to his position as a governing official, they say, wait a minute, what about the laws of his God? They have they observed how faithful Daniel is 
to the Most High God. He is blameless and upright in all his dealings. So let's turn his strength against him. It's pretty clever. Notice they are determined to find something, even if they have to invent it themselves. And once again, obviously, they can find nothing to hold against Daniel. So the conspiracy deepens. And here's where they, this is risky, but somewhat genius. They involve the king. These are the actions of desperate men. Their motivation for getting rid of Daniel is more than they just disliked him. That becomes obvious because they are risking a lot by petitioning the king. Which means their motivation is stronger than just minor personality conflicts. These men were afraid of Daniel. They feared discovery of their wicked schemes. Remember, the reason for their appointment to the position was the king feared loss. Daniel took that mission to heart, but that presented a problem for them. So they conspired together and petitioned the king. They come to the king in verse 6, and they petition him. King Darius, live forever. Now that is a standard greeting for a king in the ancient Middle East. But here's, let me read it. Then these commissioners and satraps came to agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. Now herein lies why I call this a conspiracy. Because we see the two elements necessary for conspiracy charge. The commissioners and satraps discussed and agreed upon their course of action. Here's the conspiracy. And they came and spoke to the king to convince him to follow their plan. There's your overt act. So what is the plan? Verse 7 tells us what their plan is. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. That's ambitious. These men, knowing the character of Daniel, plead before the king to enact a law that they know Daniel cannot keep. Because they know the practice of Daniel with reference to his devotion to Almighty God. They knew he would violate that law as a matter of conscience. You know, it's not uncommon for oppressive, oppressive regimes to enact laws designed to punish a particular person or a particular class of people. In fact, there's even a name for it. It's called Bills of Attainder. By the way, that is unconstitutional in the United States. Not to say it hasn't been done. But this case was a little different because of the conspiracy. The king did not know the intent of the conspirators. This plan was insidious. They give the impression that this law was meant to honor the king. King, you should do this because of who you are, and this will show to everybody just how majestic and how great you are. 
And all of his top officials are in agreement with this new law. The essence of the law is to restrict anyone from pleading or petitioning anything to any god or person for 30 days. Violators will be cast into the lion's den. Now there's a nice touch. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> if you th Just think about it. It elevated the stature of, of the king by providing the death penalty for violation of the, of the injunction. And the casting into the lion's death assured death would take place. At least in their minds it would. If the king brought, bought their plan and enacted this law, they would be home free. Daniel would be gone. They would be free to practice whatever chicanery they desired. So in their minds, the reward was worth the risk. So they plead one last time to the king. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Notice how they phrase their final plea. Establish the injunction. Sign the document. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, when a king enacted such a law, irrevocable. Even the king couldn't change or revoke the law. Let me just pause here for a moment in our narrative. Here's another example of a nation gone wrong. In God's court, rulings are irrevocable because his justice is perfect. And while God gives much authority to nations and governing officials, even the death penalty, infallibility is not part of it. Men, even righteous men, can be wrong. So there's always room for an appeal or revoking an unjust law. Or, or simply just correcting a mistake. But the Medes and the Persians had taken sovereignty too far. They had encroached upon an area reserved for God alone. Because God alone is sovereign. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is omniscient. He alone is perfection in justice. But the king listened to the men whom he had appointed, except one was strangely missing. That's Daniel was not among them. You know, there should, that should have been a warning for the king. His most trusted advisor was not present on this auspicious occasion. And he was swayed by his administrators, and we read in verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. At this point, the commissioners and the satraps had to be feeling pretty good. They swayed the king to sign the injunction. But meanwhile, this is the book of Daniel. Where is Daniel? What's he doing? Let's read verse 10 and catch up on Daniel. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, oh, let me read that again. 
Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. As we read this verse, something immediately jumps out. Daniel knew that the document was signed. During the course of this conspiracy, Daniel was not in the dark. How much he knew was debatable, but he knew there was a conspiracy to take him down. Remember that while evildoers hated Daniel and his friends, he had the favor of many high officials in the various courts he served. From the very beginning, he had the favor of Nebuchadnezzar's chief bodyguard and then Nebuchadnezzar himself. He had the ear of Belshazzar's queen mother, if you remember, the night Belshazzar was killed. So besides the many enemies among the crooked politicians, it's fair to say that Daniel had a good many friends in the court of King Darius. So he had some knowledge of their evil plan, and that's what the allusion is to in verse 10. Daniel knew that the document was signed. He knew something was going on, and yet, interestingly enough, he doesn't intervene before the king. He allows the conspiracy to play out. He waits, and when he knew the document was signed, he doesn't alter his behavior one iota. He continues his daily practice. Remember in the first chapter of the book of Daniel, we saw how Daniel was uncompromising in his practice of godliness. He refused, remember, he refused the king's food because he would not defile himself. Now Daniel, he's not a 20-year-old man anymore. He's an old man. And we see that same spirit still in him. He's at least 70, probably older. Knowing about the signing of the document goes right back to, he goes right back to his normal routine of praying. In his roof chamber, with open windows facing Jerusalem. Before we move on, it appears that this has been his practice for more than 50 years. Openly, in sight of all who pass by his house. And he never forgot the land he was removed from those many years ago. So he opened the windows facing Jerusalem. Not because it was prescribed by law, but to remember the land promised that he longed to see again. You've got to like Daniel. This was his practice. And the document was not going to prevent him from his daily prayers. Kneeling, praying, giving thanks three times daily. His fellow commissioners and satraps knew this routine well, which is why they presented the petition to the king. It made no difference to Daniel. He continued just as he had done previously. You realize he, he could have still prayed, but done secretly, just closed the shutters. And no one would know. But that's not Daniel. He was not a, his faith was not a secret faith. It was practiced openly for all to see. 
So things seem to be going well for the conspirators. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. They came to Daniel's house by agreement. By agreement, the conspiracy continues. And just as they had hoped, there is Daniel, just as always, kneeling, praying, with his eyes towards Jerusalem, petitioning God in prayer. They now have the evidence they desired. So they return to the king and relate to him in a devious way. Notice how what they say even when they come back. I, I say devious because they don't just tell the king what Daniel has done, but they make it appear that they had just happened to come across Daniel's violation. Look at verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And listen to what I say. Didn't you sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? Notice, they take it off themselves. We, we didn't do this. This is your injunction, right, king? That's why I say this is devious. They remove themselves from the equation and put the burden on the king so that when it revealed who the king has no one to blame but himself. Notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, remember the injunction we convinced you to sign? No, they removed themselves from any culpability and placed the burden on the king. And judging by the way the king responds, they have done a good job so far. For the king's not onto them yet. Look at verse 12 again. The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. King knows he's signed. He knows it's irrevocable. What he doesn't realize is that these conspirators have pulled the wool over his eyes. So at the king's acknowledgement of the injunction, they dropped the bomb. Verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Once the king acknowledged the injunction and the permanency of it, now they believe they're home free, so now they drop the bomb on him. The problem of Daniel is now ready to be solved. The conspiracy has done its work, and the king has no choice but to cast Daniel in the lion's den. Now they are confident and ready to speak in, in rather blunt fashion now. They refer to Daniel not as one of the three commissioners ruling over the empire, but remember, he's an exile. Doesn't matter, that was 50-some years ago. And even, even the way they bring the charge against him, Daniel pays no attention to the king or the injunction. Talk about pejorative language. The conspiracy is no longer a secret, but is now apparent even in the chamber of the king. And so is the motivation for the treacherous 
of the treacherous hearts of the conspirators. For look at how the king responds. Verse 14. Then soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Wow. That verse tells us a lot. Daniel was not just a servant of the king. The king liked Daniel. He respected Daniel. Again, no surprise here. The character and godliness of Daniel has been manifested his whole life. You know, godliness either draws people to it or repels people. In the case of Daniel, it did both. Godliness, his godliness drew him close to the rulers he served, but repelled the evildoers he worked with. And we see both in action. The wicked administrators conspired to rid themselves of the blameless man who they were afraid would expose them. But King Darius was deeply distressed, set his mind, is there anything I can do to deliver Daniel from the lions? And he probably had his team of lawyers looking through the books. Is there any, is there any case law? <laughs> is there any case law that how I can get out of this and without casting Daniel into the lion's den? And then just to add insult to injury, the conspirators come again to the king with a little reminder. Just in case the king is wavering, in verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that the law, this is, it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Two reasons they return to the king with these words. First, a genuine reminder to the king, just in case he's thinking about delivering Daniel. But second, I believe they're rubbing salt in the wounds to gloat over their apparent victory. And I say apparent victory because as we will see next week, their gloating was premature. And God wasn't finished with Daniel yet. And he wasn't finished with them yet either. You know, when we began our study in Daniel a couple months ago, I mentioned that it was a book that is especially relevant to the church in America today. I don't know if Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or if he was part of a greater conspiracy. I've read books on it. It does interest me. I haven't seen enough of any one view to, to put it forth and say, I believe this one. But I do know this. The church is the object of a cosmic conspiracy ever since the fall of Adam. But like Daniel, you need not fear. But you do need to be aware of how the forces of evil will come after you, just as Daniel did. You need to know this. When you stand for Christ, you will make enemies. They will conspire against you. But just as this story isn't over for Daniel, 
It's not over for you when you're in the midst of trouble either. Daniel wasn't afraid because he was well-versed in the word of God. He prayed three times daily. He had communion with his heavenly father. And I would encourage you to be in the word on a regular basis. Sunday morning is not enough. We have other Bible studies. We have Wednesday prayer meeting. And that's another thing. You need to have an active prayer life. We're not relegated to three times a day like Daniel. We're told to pray ceasingly. We should always be in an attitude of prayer. And then whenever we can, join with the church for prayer. I just want to close by reading the lyrics to an old hymn. It's in our hymn book. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then listen to these words. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Be like Daniel. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith, I would encourage you to bow the knee, repent of your sin, come to Jesus Christ, and you're going to have the faith like Daniel. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant? Or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.